the Tenuous Links podcast, home of the Golf Barons. Offering bloviated opinions on all things golf, discussing the game's biggest problems and some solutions to them as loosely as possible. Come add some swagger to your swing. Hello Barons, thanks for joining us again on this Tenuous Links Golf Podcast, home of the Golf Barons, now playing on Fox Sports 503 and on KO and Foxtel On Demand. If you haven't yet seen our show, make sure you do. Do yourself a favour and series link the whole of Season 2. Now, moving on to today's podcast, well, we'll be tackling plenty of hot topics, including golf at the Olympics and those who choose to snub it, some talented sporting families, growing the game and many other topics and to help me fumble my way through it all we have our tenuous links regular Ian Philbert great man welcome again good to be here and be ready to be offended at some point in time each of you who are listening the whole way through which is why Kipper was uninvited to this one because <laughs> it could have got awkward if he was getting offended in the middle of it <laughs> or the start or the end pretty much everywhere now yeah. Philly, I want to kick things off. Actually, before we do kick things off, I believe you've had a bit of feedback from our Hunter versus Hunted podcast. We did get some feedback, and it's actually caused quite a bit of conversation around this. Would you rather chase or lead? And at what point in time is it a comfortable lead? And we got an email to swagger at golfbarons.com from Simo. And Simo and his playing partner, Phil, which is not me, because um, apparently Phil can play, um, were playing in a match play event. Uh, and this is very, very recently, um, we're playing in a match play event, and it started off poorly. I think they were four down after four, um, managed to keep it at four down after nine, and on the 12th hole, the opposing team uh, may or may not have sunk a 40-foot birdie putt to win that to go five up with six to play. Oh, couldn't lose from here. Now, at this point in time, I believe that Simo and Phil were ready to say, well, if that par three is the nearest to the clubhouse, why don't we just concede that one? And rather than just trying to push this and potentially lose on 17, a long way away from the clubhouse, let's just walk off. But something happened. And there's this point of leadership where you need to just know when to hold them and you need to know when to fold them. Because a conversation happened halfway down the 13th hole, whereby one of either Simo or his playing partner asked the other team, who would apparently... Very good humans. Um, what happens from here in terms of the you know in terms of the event because it's a, a qualifying event and you progress through and you progress through. Uh, you guys will go into the losers section, like a repercharge area. Well, you know you got to be a little bit careful about your what what you say because they've gone on to uh, win thirteen, <laughs> oh, uh, and then they won, and, and then they won fourteen, and that with some like apparently unbelievable shots. They've then won fifteen. Ooh, the collar's starting to tighten. And then they've won 16. Um, and the other team had a, a, apparently the, the good player on the other team, um, and the two players, had a four or five foot putt that would have made the match dormy mm-hmm. on 17. And as Kipper said, when you're under pressure, and he made this point in the podcast, when you're under pressure, you change your routine. You, you hold or take more time. And apparently the young lad stood over the putt for a little bit too long. And the boys thought, we're in with a chance here. They've won 17. All square going up 18. They've won 18. Take the chocolates. Hunter versus hunting. Um, It is so much easier to chase than it is to lead. Was the other team, by any chance, uh, wearing a blindfold for the last six holes, Phil? (laughs) 
It's just that it sits really comfortably with some people. It just sits comfortably. But the thing about people at our, our standard, and whether it be, that be a four marker, a 14 marker or a 24 marker, is at any point in time they can play three or four holes unbelievably. And particularly if you're playing in a team event, um, a four ball event, you know, you've you've got double the chance of someone pulling it out. But for two people on one team to pull it out and the other two to go into the shell. Anyway, so Swagger, had got, if you've got any other uh, feedback, um, ideas, podcast ideas or otherwise, or anything else regarding something we've spoken about in a podcast, swagger at golfbarons.com. Beautiful, Philly. Now let's kick off today's podcast. Let's get into, I want to I start off with um, the Olympics. It's not, not far away now later this month over in Tokyo, and I just want to talk a little bit about players choosing or not choosing to play. Now, the US named its eight-strong Olympic golf team uh, for Tokyo, which is four, was four men and four women, just recently. So the men, we've got Justin Thomas, Colin Murakawa. Or Murakawa, as like people would call him. <laughs> Xander Shoffley and Bryson. And with the women, the two quarter girls in Nellie and Jess, Daniel Kang and Lexi Thompson. I want to focus a little bit on the men just for a minute because I saw I saw a tweet that was, or it might have been an Insta post actually, that was posted by um, JT, by Justin Thomas, and it just highlighted the difference in attitude um, towards the Olympics between some athletes and others. Uh, this, is, this is what he popped up there. I think it just hit me in the last few days that I'm going to get to represent America in the Olympics. Tremendous honour and I can't wait to wear the red, white and blue in Tokyo with an exclamation mark because everyone uses them haphazardly these days. Including me. (laughs) Compare that, though, Philly, to Dustin Johnson, for example, or or even Adam Scott locally. They're both snubbed representing um, their respective nations. Do you remember back when playing at the Olympics was the most, or being in the Olympics, representing your country was the most elite thing you could possibly do, and there's no way on earth you would turn your back on it if you could? You look at the sacrifices that are made by athletes, no matter what, sport and a lot of them are athletes that that aren't going to make a cent from their sport but the sacrifice they make both to get to the olympics but but to represent their country and carry their country's flag to to wear the country tracksuit i I mean the the pride of i actually know a couple of people who've got australian tracksuits in their cupboards and it's this sort of smile of yeah i got one of those it is absolutely incredible um that that people have that And, and i think there's a pride that, um, and normally I'd say are the US, as a topic, are people in the US uh, more hell-bent on getting the Olympics, particularly in a sport like golf, than Australians. But in reality, the withdrawals are not dissimilar in that you've got DJ, so DJ pulled the pin, Louis, your mate Louis Ustazen pulled the pin, um, Adam Scott, now I'd, this might be a little bit harsh, but perennial pin puller. So what, what is it? What do you think it is? What, what's going on? I think there's a combination of things. Number one with golfers, it seems that they don't really think, one, that golf should be at the Olympics, or they just don't see the Olympics as that important or that, that much of a pinnacle. And I kind of, part of me kind of agrees with them now. I think the Olympics has, has, lost, its, um, has lost its meaning in a lot of ways, which we can go into a little bit later on. But, I mean, we still do have proud Aussies representing us i mean we've got at least we've got you know leishman and cam smith yeah, absolutely. and then they as a team they play beautifully together some of the arguments against golf or why why people are pulling the pin seem to sort of focus around oh it's just another 72 hole event and and blah 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 but that to me is such a moot argument because they play just another 72 
whole event every other week on the PGA Tour. Well, this is once every four years to represent your country. Didn't it? I've got a feeling that, that going back four years ago, the, the excuse was that... It was the Zika virus back then. But it didn't fit in with the schedule. And so part of it is scheduling and part of it is COVID, which just seems to be a convenient excuse. Of course it is, yeah. They also wear their flag, you know, and again, if you go back to Leishman Smith, I mean, they, they have this desperation to get there. But I also think they have this this multi-sport fascination. It's something that, that, you know, you talk about Justin Thomas and Tiger Woods and part of Thomas's and Woods' connection is the fact that they are obsessed with other sports. So in Justin Thomas's mind and even Smith and Leishman's mind, it's I get to walk out there with one of my favourite basketballers or a sprinter that I know all about or, you know, he's a runner, he's a rower. Like these are from, from a multiple sport background as opposed to... Golf, reinforcing this, no, golf's just about me. Me, 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 yeah. Is there an element, uh, at least here, of the two guys that are representing us being kind of that those country kind of kids when they grow up? Out on living, you know, sort of a bit more out back, uh, a bit more of that, that patriotism, I guess, that seems to seems to be spruiked. I think they just love opportunity, and I think they'd, they'd see something and they grab it. Now, whether, you know, as a blind survey, whether they would say, I think golf deserves to be at the Olympics or should be at the Olympics, and that, and we'll get onto that topic, but, but I think they just love the opportunity and the excitement of saying to their kids and their grandkids, yeah, I remember the opening ceremony at Tokyo. You know, and it wasn't in 2020, it was in 2021. Oh, why was it in 2021, Grandpa? But they, they can tell that story. And I think that sometimes the stories that golf creates is the excitement. You know, Justin Rose proudly displays his gold medal, I think, as a almost as a hashtag, you know, within his bio. It's one of his proudest achievements. Well, when we saw the smiles of, of Rose and uh, Henrik Stenson and um, uh, Matt Kuchar when they, you know, the, the medal winners at the last... And it meant they even said it. It ended up meaning more to them than they realised before they went into it. I, I thought that would have been because I, I think we had a similar discussion four years ago or five years ago, whatever it was, uh, when um, Adam Scott had had a similar. Like we had this conversation around Scotty after that because he he didn't want to go last time, and we thought, well, hang on, he's clearly going to talk to these guys or, or see what you know the reaction of these these guys at those older. Um, stalwarts of the game and go hang on I've got one more crack at this I really shouldn't turn my back on it anyway I mean it's his decision I, I don't begrudge him it I just find it find it odd well it's weird but then again we find the Ben Simmons things weird and I don't want to try and work basketball into a conversation but it, you always had to bring it uh, up yeah, didn't you? of course I had to bring it up because it's not potentially it's not dissimilar I mean there, there actually is not another sport where someone gets selected in the Olympic team and doesn't take it up because every other selection for the Olympic team, and maybe this is getting back to does golf belong there, every other selection is a, I am pursuing selection. You have to go to the swimming trials. You have to win a national title and you have to get a qualifying time. In golf, it's, I will take the top 60 of anyone who wants to. to Who wants to? Yeah. Put your hand up if you want to go. Um, So tennis, now, because I, I just don't really care, anything about tennis. I don't know whether or not the same situation is occurring in tennis where the elite are turning up or not turning up, but therefore it brings into question the same thing. I mean, when it, forget the pinnacle. It's whether if there's not a qualifying, and again, going back to the genius of, of Mr. Van Velkenberg on Twitter, and I can't, Kevin Van Velkenberg on Twitter, when he talked about this pre-queue tournament where everyone has to pre-queue other than the carryover champ, maybe there actually should be 
an Olympic golf trial. I mean, if you want to make golf mean a lot, play it over 72 holes and get the top 24 players in Australia who all of a sudden do have an opportunity to get there, but they're going to earn their right as opposed to earn their right like it's a FedEx Cup or a President's Cup. Yeah, exactly. They're going to earn their right over 72 holes by playing at – they're going to play at Royal Melbourne. They're going to play over 72 holes. It's not a televised event. There will be no grandstands. It's just a hardcore if you would like to go to the Olympics. But therefore, Adam Scott or the others can choose to withdraw from that 24-person field. But I can tell you who's not going to withdraw is Cam Davis and Lucas Herbert. Jason Scriven is not going to withdraw. Wade Ormsby is not going to withdraw. Neither Smith, Smith Leishman, um, we know Jason Day won't play because it'll happen here. But <laughs> but they'll be desperate to play. I mean, there'll be an absolute desperation to then play because I've earned my spot in the Olympics through an Olympic qualifier. And the Olympics isn't about personalities in the end either. It's about the stories. That's what makes it such a wonderful event or has at least in the past so i'm not sure i'm not sure it necessarily loses anything by having some of the bigger names drop out in fact there's there's probably a pretty strong argument to suggest it does the reverse having the bigger names out that you see every other week it probably allows some of the some really cool stories to eventuate well let's hope that there's not a qualifying for commentators um, because i'm very happy if the australian commentators (laughs) i mean other than ibf would like to you can't let it go. <laughs> like if, if he chooses not to qualify or chooses not to go to the Olympics, then that's okay. But I, I do – I mean, that's the other thing, like getting back to the, the, the whole crux of the issue or crux, as people would say. Does golf belong there? Yeah, it's it's an interesting question. I'm, I argue with myself on both, both sides of this. Field. I think to a degree – I'm just not sure the Olympics is really about celebrating sheer athletic excellence anymore. It's sort of been – it's been infected with this wokeism – that you and I decry continually. I think it stopped celebrating sheer when Daphne Yongyan stopped diving. <laughs> but but we see. Like, I I'd understand for someone like an Adam Scott who, growing up, the Olympics to him he would have he would have watched it in a similar way that we did, where it was such such a brilliant event of pure athleticism. It was just it was just the best athletes, best male athletes in the world against each other, the best female athletes in the world against each other. Names you never heard of became instant stars, became household names, records were broken. Like it was exciting. You'd sit there and for days you'd just you'd just sit on the couch and watch these these people who, as you said earlier, sacrificed so much to get there become household names overnight and overnight success stories, so to speak. Now it just doesn't seem that that's the case anymore. They're more worried about around the politics, and we've heard of all the corruption and thing, you know, back-ended corruption and all sorts of things that have been involved. And then there's the drugging issues in the sports. I think it's lost. It's lost its. It might have been naive. It's kind of a naive thing to say that there weren't a lot of those things in the past. But once they've surfaced, it's, it's almost become the Olympics has lost that um, purity. I guess maybe I still love it. I mean, from my point of view, I. I love it. And what's interesting for me is I love, funnily enough, I love watching Olympic basketball. I love watching volleyball. I love the athletics. And I love the swimming. And again, I love the swimming because... Because it's on 24-7, basically. But you just understand the sacrifice. I mean, you look at the condition, the timing of the preparation, everything else. And maybe Adam Scott, part of Adam Scott's reasoning, if he could ever be asked this and not get in trouble and not be banned and lambasted, is that... You know, I look at the sacrifices every other athlete has made to get there and the sacrifices the PGA Tour players have made to get there is on net jets. So there's others who've had to fund their entire journey, 
haven't made a cent out of it. Um, you look at Andrew Hoy, um, about to, I think, attend his eighth Olympics um, in, in a question. That, you know, they haven't, they, this has not been a cash cow for them. We're not all, they're not all Usain Bolts. Um, you know, Jess Fox and these people who, who just haven't made any money out of it. And maybe it's a, partly a, this, not protest, but saying, we've sacrificed nothing to get there. And every other athlete walking to the Olympics or walking around on the, at the opening ceremony has sacrificed everything. And maybe there just is that point where he doesn't fit in. We shouldn't speak on his behalf, but it would not surprise me if he just didn't think that golf should be at the Olympics. So therefore, I would love him just to say, I'm not going to the Olympics because... A bit of honesty would be in that because respect. Because golf shouldn't be, nice. be there. Yeah, but, but if he said that, they'd go after him. Everyone would go after him. So I understand why he wouldn't. I wouldn't ban him from going to the Olympics. <laughs> like, what's the what's what's the drawback other than the fact that you, sometimes you just don't want to put your head out there and declare with you know five up with six to play that the losers you know you losers will go into the uh, repertoire finals. Well, speak, speaking of putting your head out there, Phil, this this Olympics where we're going to see um, some biological men competing against bio, biological women. Uh, do you see that as a as a positive or a negative? Are we still talking about golf? I will bring this back to golf, but just so just in case you weren't sure, there's, there's that the new transgender policy in there that's effectively allowing um, biological men uh, to compete against women. Google New Zealand weightlifter Laurel Hubbard uh, and tell me female athletes are being treated fairly at these Olympics, Philly. You're opening this is an enormous can of worms, and I, I think um, I appreciate the the ten of you that are still listening. There's some real challenges with freedom of choice and freedom of movement versus what's fair. And the Olympics has just always been uh, men and women, not gents, not ladies and gentlemen, because that would be a derogatory term, but men and women have been competing um, at the Olympics forever. And, and you know, we saw the uproar with Casta Semenya. Um, and, you know, with her success running the 800 for... South Africa and all the things that go along with it. And I think it's not illogical to then say at what point in time does it happen in the sport that we're playing. And and that's that's sort of where I'm getting back to is why do we even have men's and women's competitions if we're allowing those lines to be blended anyway? Like and it's we know we know for a fact taking out all the political stuff. We know for, we know biologically that men have a Men are superior in an athletic sense in, in terms of we are stronger, we are faster, and that's the, millions of years of biology to, um, and evolution to back that up and reasonings for it. But this year at the Olympics, they've got a, a stipulation in their policy that in terms of the, an, the maximum amount of testosterone that can be had within a, a woman, well, some, someone competing in a woman's event is around, hang on, Philly, I've got it here. The Olympic policy is an athlete's total testosterone level levels in serum must remain below 10 nano, what are these things, nano something or others, nanomoles per litre, so up to 10. Now, the normal levels in women is around 0.3 and 2.4. So it's nearly 10 times the amount is allowed. There's no way that's fair for for women to be competing against effectively, and I'm going to get yelled at, but effectively men. You're going to get yelled at, you know. I know. Are you ready to get yelled at? Swagger at golfbarons.com. No, 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 not by me. Not by me because I think the same thing. It's it's the sacrifices that are made and it's not about choices but 
but you know we've had this um, situation in in AFL football in Australia where the AFL have had to actually say, you know what, you you can't play because we just feel it would be dangerous. Like you you can't play at the elite level. We've seen it in UFC uh, where you've seen uh, it's, it's brutal. Like if you go and look at that stuff, you'll make your decision very quickly that biological men should not be fighting anyway. Let's let's at least draw the line there. Should not be fighting against biological women. Um, and if you think about, and again, bring it back to, to golf, it was Mayanna Bagger um, was the first um, transitioned golfer to play in, and she played in the Australian Women's Open um, in 2004, I think it was. But Mayanna Bagger was not Mayanna Bagger. Um, but again, because she was able to make, Whatever adjustments have to be made. Sorry, obviously I'm not a doctor uh, and I'm probably treading the line a little bit carefully. But the reality is is that we like, from a society point of view, we like diversity and we like all these other things. But when you get to an elite sporting level, it's just got to be level playing field for the field that you're competing against. And that remains the whole issue. Because um, if DJ were wanted, decided to become D Diane J, um, and play, it could be an extraordinary advantage because his physical attributes remain, you deal with the testosterone, I know it's a long bow, but the Olympics, there's got to be a purity to it. Otherwise, you know what you just say, um, let's let, it's game on. And we finally get back to this point where Ben Johnson can run the 100 as quick as he can possibly run it. And let's see if there is a six-second 100-meter out there. And then it's just open fields and there's no, you just no go gendered it. competitions. It, it, if that's what we want as a society, well, then fair play. But um, what do you think that will mean for female athletes, Philly? I, I think it's. I think we're really treading a dangerous line here, um, and we're going to miss out on some pretty awesome competition. Um, well, let's wait and see, because again, I'm not. I'm not science based enough uh, to know what the impact is going to have. But I can tell you, there'll be uproar if if there is an upset that happens it will change the landscape and it's going to change the landscape forever and i know life changes and we've got to move on and i've gone from not having bunker rakes in the bunkers so i've gone from growing up playing rakes in the bunkers to then playing without rakes because of COVID, to then deciding that i don't know no now that we're not sick let's make the game harder again and slow it down and so rakes are back in bunkers and there's no more preferred lies and gee that's a tough adjustment i'm sorry i'm, I'm changing subject a little bit <laughs> but it's sometimes adjustments are tricky but if there's a reasonable basis for them, you'll deal with it, such as rakes in bunkers. I am yet to see reasonable basis for what they've allowed other than trying to do the right thing by everybody and be so inclusive, the game ends up being exclusive. On the Absolutely. Game. Well, we, let's, let's move along quickly. Um, now, family talents, Philly, we've, we've, seen, we've seen recently uh, Nelly oh, Calder yeah. reach the world number one. It's a family, obviously Peter Calder, the old man who was oh, still one of the greatest lines of all time when he, when he went through the um, the testosterone or was it? It was a steroid. He was accused of using steroids, and he said, "Look at me, <laughs> yeah, <that's right. laughs> look at me. He's so skinny. Like, how how can I possibly have taken?" Yeah, it's one of the funniest lines in sport. Anyway, I digress. Let's talk a little bit about family talent or talent in families. So I think the the quarters is the, the perfect starting point. It was funny, yeah. Peter Quarter could run like the wind because he actually was as light as the wind. Um, he just couldn't run into it that quick. It was it, it was incredible that that whole saga. But Peter Quarter so won the Australian Open and was a very very good tennis player despite missing a vowel. <laughs> Peter, uh, he, his wife um, got to twenty sixth in the world in tennis. You've got Jess Quarter, um, unbelievable player. You've got Nelly Quarter now world 
number one on the LPGA Tour. And then Seb, the brother, goes to Wimbledon uh, and wins his first round. I didn't see what happened in the second round, but won his first round match. At Wimbledon, it's kind of, geez, you've got a bit of talent in your family. So therefore, again, is it is it nature or nurture? Is it is it genetics or the fact that once you've got people in your family, and this will end up being a question, when you've got people in your family who've achieved great things, does it become easier to achieve great things or have you just got a bit of a roadmap? Well, it's like anything in life that knowledge about a topic is gold, I guess. So if you've got people within your family or close in your close, close-knitted community who have experienced these things already, they they've as you say they've got that roadmap there their knowledge you're already ahead of the game because you've got access to knowledge that others don't have they've already been on they've climbed the mountain that they've already done it they've looked down and they can tell you what to do and what not to do so that obviously has something to do with it. the whole nature versus nurture debate really is a fascinating one is it the biological genetics you know that most impact our human traits or, or is it the influence of learning um, and other teaching influences. I think most of us would probably come to the conclusion that it's at least a little bit of both. They both obviously have an impact. Which one is more determining? Oh, I don't know, Phil. It's I'm not a psychologist. No, we're not much. But um, you've got desire, you've got intent, and you've got genetics and work ethic and all these other things. And when we run through some talented families, and there's lots of talented families that extend across, I mean, when you've got two doctors that come out of one family, so, but this is, a, we, we play, this is a sport thing, so sorry to all the people who are actually smarter than me. Well, I think you, I think you nailed it, though. You, you mentioned a word, and every, when I hear this word, it, it triggers a thing in me, because it was something that was taught to me when I was, you know, in my early teens, and I, I do believe it's the difference between people that make it and people that don't, and it's that word, desire. It all comes down to those who who want it more, who are prepared to do the things others others won't do or don't do. That desire is the key word in all of this for mine. And so when we tapped into this idea or, or thought about this this idea of working through families, and, and I'll just run through just a few talented sort of golf or golf-related families. So the Molinari's, both Eduardo and Francesco played in the 2010 Ryder Cup. you got the Turners out of New Zealand. you got Greg Turner... Outstanding goal, good ping player. In fact, I still remember Greg Turner hitting chips, 10 metre, maybe 8 metre chips, uh, around the practice green at Metro in, I think, the 1986 or 87 Australian Open with his um, ping eye twos uh, and just stopping the, these things on the dime. His brother, Glenn Turner, um, New Zealand cricket captain, uh, and then and then other brother, Brian, who's an award-winning poet. You've got Graham Marsh, 70 worldwide wins. Graham Marsh dominated Japanese or golf in Japan great Australian player. His brother was Rodney. an acceptable wicketkeeper. You've got Joe Kirkwood, senior and junior. You've got Craig and Kevin Stadler, maybe not so much. Julius and Guy Boros, both great players. Um, one that I didn't, as I look, Pat Bradley. So Keegan mm. Bradley. Yeah, yeah, he's, aunt, he's auntie, wasn't it? Um, well, mum, um, unless I, well, it's either auntie or mum. I mean, it was closely related, but 36 LPGA <laughs> Tour wins. Um, Tom Morris. I mean, if we go back to them, we go to the Kepkers. And then from an NBA point of view, because I've got to do it, the holidays. I mean, there's there's like 75 holiday brothers all playing in the NBA at the moment. And we've got Danaher's, we've got Chapels, we've got Shaw's, Wars and Williams's. And in fact, one of the great sledges of all time to one of the War brothers, and I think it might have been to, was it to Mark? It was to Mark, yeah. Um, at least I'm the best cricketer in my family. Um, <laughs> which, But again, it does open you up to that. But again, so you've got these 
families that, that just have something in them. But then you made an interesting point. I doubt it, but go on. Which was, so which one is the greater achievement for someone is to actually come out of a family who've yeah. got history um, and have got potentially a great genetic makeup or have got desire and have got someone who's actually blazed the trail that you can follow or the, the vast majority of professional athletes around the world who've just said, I just want it, getting back to your desire point. I just want it. I want to be the best. I'm going to achieve this and I don't care who gets in my way. This is what I'm going to do. I think in the examples you've given there, I personally, I think a constant competition it plays a large role in these examples, probably more than genetics. I mean, these guys, especially the ones where you've got three or four brothers, like, you know, look at the chapels, for example, they are constant, they're constantly competing at everything, whether it's whether it's getting to the table first and eating, whether it's backyard cricket, whether it's wrestling, whether it's baseball, whether it's, it doesn't matter what it is, getting dressed first. Everything they did was a competition for them. And if you're com- constantly competing for everything, you're trying to win all the time. Well, trying to win ends up making you a winner. And and there's kind of the, there's the two methods um, or, or two approaches of where you see sports people. You see those those like um, like I've just mentioned there who have grew up have grown up in a really competitive ultra competitive environment if you want to get fed you've got to fight for food and then there's the flip side of that which is the tiger woods side of things where you've got an only child but but the sole focus on him being great which was driven by his dad earl they gave him the complete complete and utter dedication and devotion to one thing well the woods so so tiger's closer to venus and serena in, in terms of their future was preordained by their dad because this is what you are going to be doing you you get good at it and get used to it um unfortunately for all of them they then fell in love with the sport whereas plenty of others are are taken away from it but for mine what's you know the the largest one for me the most impressive and one of my other sporting heroes is someone like bo jackson who just said i'm going to do it because i've got to create a better life for me i've got to create a better life for my my family um and and that little prick stole my bike. And so because the prick stole his bike, it then set off a chain of events that led to Bo Jackson being one of the most supreme athletes the world has ever seen. And someone, by the way, who also loves golf, but whereby it was just absolute intent and desire and I'm going to let nothing get in my way and I'm not going to be disrupted or distracted the whole way until I pursue my dream. So you know, when you don't have someone driving you, that actually becomes even harder. When you don't have someone sitting next to you or sitting on your shoulder saying, let's go, let's go, let's go, and it's all internal, you know, that, that then creates a difference. And you think about the caddy, the caddy golfers out of Spain in terms of be it Jimenez or, or be it um, Seve or, or the yeah. two Ballesteruses. Well, well Alathabal was, was the first of the manufactured golfers, um, as I was told at dinner um, with Miguel. Um, How but, did that uh, go, Phil? Uh, uh, like, why, do you, why do you both keep asking me that? Um, the, the steak was lovely. No, it was, a, it was yes. But, but the idea is that Alathabal was, uh, was the first of the manufactured um, golfers in Spain where they had all the support around them. But up until that point, it was really just a, we're going to get it done and I'm going to find a way of getting it done because this is what I want to do. Lee so, Trevino in, in the US is another great example of, of what you're saying. But yeah, Trevino, as you're saying, it just says, I want it. 
Yeah, again, necessity being the mother of all inventions. I, I need to make a better life for myself and I'll find a way. But self-motivation, and we, we know this ourselves, self-motivation is probably the hardest motivation. It's easy to, to, to motivate other people, but motivating yourself, that's self-drive. Some people just have it in spades and it's, um, it's one of the most valuable things you can have. Dave Goggins. I mean, we, we oh, you put me absolutely. onto you put me onto "Can't Hurt Me" by Dave Goggins. And if, if people are looking for a read just to get them up and about, they really should. But to learn that you can keep pushing, like you don't know what your limit is, so you can keep going at any point in time. You can keep going. But the vast majority, including me, I'm I'm not going to put myself on a pedestal. It just the easy option sometimes. Well, you're tall enough, Phil. Thank you. The easy option is sometimes just too easy. And again, we're going to do a podcast focusing a little bit on the difference between good and great you know, later on. But this idea of if you give yourself an out, the greatest achievement sometimes is to not take it. Um, that day where I wake up and I, I was going to go to the gym, no, I couldn't really be bothered. The minute you get out of that gym that day is the best you're best ever going to feel. feel. Yeah, 100%. So it's that that self-drive that comes. So one is you've got the quarters. You've got the family where success is all around the family, it, born of hard work, um, but success is there and you live it and you breathe it. And you've got all these other families the whole way through where you live it and breathe it. But it's the ones who are just grinding away that you, you never pop up on the radar until you see them at the Olympics running for Jamaica and you say, yeah. do that, you're saying Bolt's all right, isn't he? Let's let's talk about golf a little bit, and you you would probably should <laughs> you were mentioning at some point you were mentioning an article you read about growing the game, and and, and it got you thinking. I, I did, and it was a it, it was a very good article by Karen Harding, um, and it was a, about identifying growing the game and identifying key aspects to increase participation and how to become more inclusive and everything else. But there's one element that that I won't quite say grinds on me, but I think is being ignored and continues to be ignored. By Golf Australia and potentially by golf associations all around the world. Um, we've had enormous growth in the game, mm-hmm. but the focus of it was we need to continue to adjust the gender balance in the game. And there's a lot of great things that come from it. And there are, from a club point of view, there are enormously great things that come from it. But at what point in time do you allow the game to grow or do you have to try and force a gender equation which says I need 25% members in my club. Well, there's one way is to target women, okay, which is which is what a lot of clubs are doing and they're doing it proactively. Well, you know what? If 25% is the benchmark and there's going to be a kick around that and we're going to invest in it, why don't we just not target men? And not only that, we actually put a cap and we say, you know what? I know you're desperate to play here and I know you're desperate to invest here and I know you've got a family who will also then go on to play, but I'm sorry, you're male. So the thing that that con, not not concerns me because the article was bang on about where growth can come from, but I think the fact that men continue to take up the game at a significantly faster rate than women, yet without any investment or, or any obvious investment, other than if you're over seventy, you can now let's get in get you into golf late. But if you're forty to seventy, I I in fact I'll say thirty to seventy. I don't believe there is a cent spent. On trying to target males to get into the game of golf. We're finding it and men are finding it and men are falling in love with it and they're falling in love with it at a significantly faster rate than women. It's great that women are finding it because then the girls come through and the whole family aspect of the game improves. Mm-hmm. But at what point in time are we going to be so obsessed 
with a with a gender balance that we start forcing a quota and capping male membership. But I'd ask you, yeah, I tend to agree with you. I'd ask you, do we even need a gender balance? I mean, this whole concept, it's such an arbitrary basic endpoint that neglects the, a whole range of variables. Like right now, so, so right now it's never been an easier time for women to take up golf, to, to play golf with like-minded partners, to access golf clubs and all the rest of it. You've had, as you mentioned, Golf Australia has been pushing it uh, almost as its sole directive, if we're, if we're being honest, yep. for several years now. But this is the point for me. This is where I feel like we're banging our heads against a brick wall. You can't force women to play golf just because you want to achieve this arbitrary 50-50 split or, or 20, increase it by 25 percentage, you say. I don't believe golf needs more women per se. I think more women need golf if they want it, if they want to play it. It, it, it just it seems such an illogical thing, uh, thing for me. How does, how does having more of one gender change uh, change what the game is so so why are we pretending that golf is just spiraling out of control downhill and it can only be saved by having more women and less men playing it it's just it's an inane drivel it's manufactured fully by these i don't know by, by these pseudo intellectuals justifying overpaid positions it's we should be encouraging women to play the game we should be encouraging men to play the game. We should just encourage people to play the game, play it together. Focusing on, on one gender over another, all that does for me is it just divides us more instead of bringing us together. And I, you and I, are, we're prime examples. We love, this, this will come out well, we love playing with women. We love playing golf with women as a rule. We love playing with families. We're turning our back on a massive, on the vast majority, to be fair, the vast majority of people who keep this game going in this country, at least in Australia, we're turning our backs on them as if they don't exist. Well, I think the extension of that, when you look at a golf club example, that will have a number of golf clubs continue to have a, a women-specific golf day of the week. Uh, and I was talking to someone only last week, and he said, look, really, it, it's quite difficult to get on to his course on a Tuesday or a Thursday because there is just large blocks in key times dedicated to women yet women can also play any day of the week in around the men and I know sometimes to move the pendulum to find that balance point we have to move it the other way but I think when you when you start forcing openings you say so so to your point what do what do having more women add to a club I think it adds a great ambience to a club it adds a life it adds color um, it adds all these other things but I think the minute you're forcing it but that's my point. It's, yes, the minute you're forcing it, you, you're, you're actually going out of your way to create potential frictions as opposed to, no, I'm choosing it. So we're all yes. choosing the game and we, we do understand we want to grow the game and we need to keep golf sticky because otherwise when the, when the bubble bursts, um, because people have to discover the game and love it for the game to be able to sustain its momentum as it is currently going. And when the bubble bursts, we need enough people who love it, not people who are dabbling in it. So we agree that it's now as good a time as it is has ever been uh, to, to get women into golf and the, the barriers, are there's very few barriers. In fact, there's a lot of, lot of upside and a lot of reasons for coming into the game, yet it's not growing in the way that these, these guys are suggesting it should. Why aren't women taking it up then, Phil? So there's, there's confidence, there's uh, opportunity. There is no question that, that people, and we know this from, from night, we know this from... Um, the, the the uber baron the night from Fran and Kelly that that sometimes you go to a golf club and you it, it feels imposing um, and it feels exclusive now you can't do anything 
necessarily about that because that's the feeling of the person looking at it. But is that also because we are defining men and women so separately and creating two, two memberships, so to speak, that we're actually creating that divide, that tension? But it's actually a mood thing. So it's, it's the same as why do people – why would people ever buy golf clubs? In reality, why would people ever buy golf clubs from Big W, Kmart or Rebel when you could buy them from a specialised golf shop? Because they're intimidating. Because to go in there and say, I've never played golf before and I can't really hit it. And now I've walked into, it would be like me, I can't fish, I've never gone fishing and potentially wouldn't know one end from the other. If I go into a fishing shop, if I was going to go and buy a fishing rod, I would go somewhere generalist where there's very little chance that I can get laughed at. So is that gendered, Phil? Or is, I mean, what about men who have never played the game? I'm just playing devil's advocate here, but what about blokes who have never played the game and are trying to get into a club? Is are you suggesting that it's different for them in that respect? So th- there's one thing. There is still that same intimidation of standing on a tee and being about to hit it with people looking at you. But if you walk I know, in, I still feel it. If you walk into a room, in reality, if you walk into a room and 90% of the room is male and 10% of the room is female, and this is mm. Karen's point, um, a male's going to immediately feel more comfortable. Like that, That's just the way it is. Um, you know, they'll feel more amongst their people. So, so that is one of the challenges that a golf club has. However, to actually drive gender balance is one thing. So these are not the Houses of Parliament. There's not a finite number of seats. So therefore, to, to talk about trying to get to a, a 15 or 20 or 25% of women in the game is saying that at some point in time, if we're desperate to achieve that number, we're going to have to cap the other side and just go, you know what, there's only 100 seats. There's only 100 tea times of which 25 must be for women, which doesn't help the game grow. Because, as I say, you get... Let's say you join a golf club, shoot her up on the Gold Coast. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, in two years' time, your kids say, Dad, I wouldn't mind playing golf. All of a sudden, by you joining, you you have got three kids there. And then all of a sudden, mm. you know, your wife wants to join as well. And fa- yeah, and family family golf's the best kind of golf. Of course it is. So, so as... Look at all the benefits that come with targeting, not gender-specific, but to your point, just targeting growth. Yeah, 100%. That's, that's why I think we've, we're misguided. We're misguided, I think, in the approach. I, I, don't th- I don't think any of us are suggesting that we don't want more women playing the game. We're just suggesting that targeting, having that as your sole directive is actually more of a hindrance. Because when you have it, we've and the results speak for themselves. We've we've made it as easy as it could be. They've spent so much money, almost solely on that, uh, the, the governing bodies here, and it, the the effect has not been. In fact, we've seen more men coming into the game even further um, post COVID. Now, yes, COVID's probably got something to do with that, and we've got to at some point realise that social engineering. We need to st- steer clear a little bit of social engineering and and just make it as open for all you've got to you've got to let it be a bit more natural i think i tell you what we need to do we need to find a way of lightening things up a little bit but that's the reality for that that is the reality for the game is it can't all be like we we love it and we want as many people as possible to love it we love every element of it we love the nuances of it from a professional point of view we love lpga uh, or women's tour or let or oh gee i always get into trouble there uh, and then the men's game um, sorry, born as male game, and and we love the amateur game. We love the champions tour. We love the way that we play, uh, and we, just, we, love, we love the game, Phil. It's, uh, and it's we love going out. It is as simple as that. And therefore, everyone should be saying, "What can we do to make this game stickier for all?" Mm-hmm. Because the minute you start assuming that 
Oh, man, that, that's right. The men will keep, they'll just keep picking up the game. They'll just keep picking up the game. There's a point like happened pre-COVID where cycling was taking over because it was just, it, it, it was making golf, golf was making itself difficult and there were alternatives. And I think there's a real danger in, in turning your back on a core market that, are, that already find the game sticky as opposed to trying to make it sticky for a new market. Both can happen and need to happen, but the investment in both need to be proportionate. <sighs> you sing it, sister. Where are we? I'm, I'm feeling tired now. I'm sleepy. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, Philly. Philly, that was, a, that was a hard one. That was tough. I think on that oh. note, we, uh, we better bring today's Tenuous Links Golf Podcast to a close. Thanks, Philly, for sharing your thoughts uh, in a slightly controversial pod. Be sure, everybody, to sign up at golfbarons.com, follow us on all our socials, and remember to series link season two of Golf Barons, now playing on Fox Sports 503 and on KO and Foxtel On Demand. Thanks again for listening, Barons, and until next time, remember to add some swagger to your swings.